sin is lawlessness. If we're trying to define what sin is, there's a million things that we could do. Most of the time when we say define sin, we start naming off different kinds of sin, but really those are the effects of a sinful nature. The sins that you and I can express with our words or that we say are sin, pride or, or greed or jealousy or murder or hatred, idolatry, those things. Those are outward expressions of the inward condition of sin. But sin at its root is what we see according to the, the actual word of what it means itself is sin is lawlessness. And, and here, 1 John chapter number 3, verse 4, he says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is a transgression of the law. If we were doing fill in the blank here, it could be easily done. What is sin? The transgression of the law. Now, there are those who would say, certainly, that we are not under the law, but under grace. But does that mean that we can continue to sin? No, God forbid we continue in sin that grace may abound. Rather, the idea is that we understand that you and I, in our sin, that it itself is a natural uh, breaking of God's law. Some would say that God didn't establish the law until Moses. I would say that he established Mosaic law then, but certainly the foundations are seen in the Garden of Eden. God puts man in the garden, a perfect place. He's the perfect father and the perfect companion. He gives him a, a wife and he gives him only one rule. Now that is a law, isn't it? One law and that's all he's got. But all that law is, is simply to obey God. If we were to boil it all down, uh, what it means to keep the law or to not keep the law, it is basically trusting and obeying the Lord. We either trust what he says and we obey what he says, or we don't trust what he says, therefore we disobey. Your disobedience and my disobedience to the word of God is because in that moment of disobedience, we have lacked a trust or an understanding of what God has to say. And for most of us, it's not even a lacking of understanding. It's just a rejection in that moment of going, I know what God says, but sin sure is nice for a season. Now, whoever transgresses the law, uh, or excuse me, whoever sins transgresseth the law of God. Now, to look here, as John Stott writes, the statement, sin is lawlessness, that is a defiant violation of God's moral law. So identifies the two as to render them interchangeable terms. Wherever one of them is read, it is possible to substitute the other, meaning sin and lawlessness. When you think of one, think of the other, all right? The two are hand in hand. To understand sin means that it is a disobedience or a rejection of God's law. God's law is important because it is he alone that can establish the law. It's he alone that establishes what is right, what is wrong, what is just, what is all those things. It is he who has done it. So if we disobey that, and that means that in the end we are disobeying not just what he has commanded, but we are disobeying the one who commands it. Right? We're disobeying God himself, not just his law. It is an extension. You see, he says then, it is not just that sin manifests itself in disregard for God's law, but that sin in its very nature uh, is in its, excuse me, but that sin is in its very nature lawlessness. Lawlessness is the essence, not the result of sin. Thus exposed in its ugly reality, the seriousness of sin emerges. And then R.C. Sproul tells us sin is cosmic treason. If we understand God to be the lawgiver, then any breaking of the law, as we've just seen, is a transgression of his law. This means that we disobey his law and we disobey him. Uh, he is the king. You and I would always say God is the king of the universe, right? He is, he's the king of all creation because he's the one that created it. He alone is the one who has the right to rule. 
and have authority over all things. Uh, No one else does. No one else can come close. God is God alone. That's it. And because God is God, therefore, everything else must be subject to his law, to his order, to his commands, to his decrees, to his desires. Everything must submit to God. That is what perfect obedience looks like. However, when sin comes in, sin brings about this lawlessness. It is in and of itself the essence breaking his law, but it ultimately goes when we see that sin is not just breaking a law like going 56 and a 55, which is still breaking the law, isn't it? We, we might not consider it, and even the cop might go, eh, not a big deal, right? I'll wait for the guy who's going you know, 63 and a 55 or something, right? Now, now, there's many cases like that, but that's man, isn't it? Now, how about this? If God has a law that says the speed limit of spirituality is 55 miles an hour, and we do 56, then what have we done? We have done something grave. We have to understand the magnitude of sin, that when we sin, we're not just making a little hiccup or a mess up or a little mistake that we need to try to erase or smudge out. Um, we're not just having a, a bad day or an off day. No, we are sinning against the God of heaven. We are as if you could point it this way. It is us walking into the throne room as a beggar and a pauper and a, and a thief and stealing the cup from the, from the hand of God and, and running right from the king. We're, we are taking something that belongs to God or we're disobeying what he has commanded and we're trying to get by with it. That is what sin truly is as brazen as what that would be. Now, no one in their right mind would burst into the king's throne room unarmed and try to steal something and then get by with it and think he's going to survive. No, of course, he knows he's going to face repercussions. He knows if he steals from the king or from the king's garden that he's going to face death. Now, how about this? For you and I, when we understand that sin is lawlessness and goes against God, transgresseth his law, then what should it bring about? Death. This is why the Bible is very clear, for the wages of sin is death, but it's the gift of God that gives us salvation. It is, it is a gift, the fact that you and I are even alive, the fact that we have broken one single law of God deter, should, should bring us straight to hell. That's what one sin would do. If you live to be 100 years old and you only committed one sin, which, by the way, it's impossible, at least for us. It's not going to happen, right? I mean, one sin in 100 years, that's, that's not too bad, is it, right? For us, if we can get by with one sin every 10 minutes, we feel like, hey, I'm doing pretty good today. This isn't too bad. But one sin, it is so depraved and so wicked and so against God that it does deserve punishment. However, most today uh, in polls and studies do not believe such anymore. We have left the severity of sin. We have left what it means to actually sin against God, and we have justified ourselves. Because when we do sin, that's what we're doing. We're justifying ourselves. We say, I deserve it. It's not that bad. Or just one time. Or all these multitude of different things. Or we even say the ones of spiritual going, well, you know, I can ask for forgiveness. That doesn't make it right. God is holy, and He is King. He is the holy King of the universe, and to not do what is in obedience to His law and word is to rebel against His authority. It is to shake your mortal fist at the divine hand of God. It is to say, what you, God, when we sin, we're saying, hey, here's what you've said is perfect and what is good, what is righteous, what is holy, what is just. I'm saying no. 
Sin is disagreeing with God. Sin is not trusting or believing what God has said. Sin is saying, when God says this is right and this is wrong, you say, no, that is right and this is wrong. It is doing that which is right in your own eyes. That is the depth of sin. You see, if we really understand it, in our sinful nature, we are rebels at heart. And ultimately, our rebellious heart desires to be king, not God. We don't desire to be under the rule of a divine king. Rather, in our sinful nature, we think we are a divine king. We think that we get the choice and that we get to decide and we get to tell God what's what. That we get to decide what we can do and what we can't do or how far we can go. You and I are not a moral authority because we are immoral creatures at best. We are sinful and wicked. Therefore, we can't decide what's right and what's wrong. God has already done that for us. Therefore, we are called simply to believe what he has said and to obey what he has said. Furthermore, we sin because we like it, because we want to. That's what the rebel does. He, He does it because in that moment, in that time, he loves himself much more than he loves his king. If uh, an officer of a king or a general for the king of, of this sort of, uh, uh, of army, right? This general, uh, he's the general of the army for the king. And, but, you know, the king tells him to do something and he doesn't like that and he disobeys. What is he doing? Right? He's, he's saying, I, I know better than the king. I should be the king because I, I, I've done better. I'm the one out here doing it. I'm the one here. I'm facing this. He does it in disobedience. Regardless. See, if the king says this, then that's what must be done. But here's the great news. You and I serve a king who will never tell us that to do anything that is unjust, immoral, unholy, unrighteous. Everything that God is and all that he is and all that he does and all that he commands is right and just and pure and holy. Cruz here writes, The heretics seem to have taught that to the enlightened Christian, questions of morality were a matter of indifference. In, con- in contrast to such understate un- underestimates of sin, John declares that it is not just a negative failure, hamartia, which is sin, meaning literally missing the mark, and adikia, unrighteousness, a deviation from what is right or just, but essentially an active rebellion against God's known will. It is important to acknowledge this because the first step towards holy living is to recognize the true nature and wickedness of sin. If you and I are to truly desire a holy life, it's going to be because we won, we, we know what sin is, we can recognize sin, we, we can hate sin. You will never hate the sin that is in your life unless you know what the sin in your life is. And you and I, by the way, are called to hate the sin that is in our life. We're called to mortify our members, to bring our bodies under subjection, uh, to keep our, our flesh in check, if you will, because it is constantly and continuously rearing its ugly head. As long as you live, your flesh will only want flesh. It will only want to do what it wants to do. It will only seek self-satisfaction, self-preservation, self-pleasure. That's all your flesh will ever do for you. Your flesh will not take you anywhere good or lead you uh, in in the path of righteousness, but rather it is the work of the Spirit through us. So this is a continuous and constant battle. You and I are called to be holy, to be a holy people. And what that means is to be set apart. It means to be set apart from sin. We're not to be identified with it as John is writing. He is saying that those who do commit the sin or transgress against him, this is, this is key, that, that we are not identified by that, but rather we're identified by righteousness, which is trusting and obeying God. It is the opposite of sin. 
And so John is battling these in their day who would minimize sin, would say it's not so bad, and today we must also do the same thing. There are many a preacher, many a pastor, many a, a heretic, to be honest, who would call themselves either one, who minimizes sin to such degree that in order to be saved, well, you're not really getting saved from sin or getting saved. You're, you're getting saved so that way you can get by with your sin. And that's not what Jesus died for. That's not why Jesus rose again. Jesus did not die for your sins for you to stay in your sins. Jesus did not die for your sins for you to try to justify your sins because his death is enough justification to cleanse us from our sins. We continuously try every time that we sin and every time that we go our own way is what we are doing is saying, I want my way, not God's way. Now, you and I, when we sin, none of us ever say that thought, do we? However, our action and our heart and our sin says it for us. Now, the Savior for sin, though, this is the great news. The great news about sin is that there is a Savior for sin. You don't have to stay in your sin. You, matter of fact, are are called to come out from your sin and to look to Christ and, and live. Look at verse number five. And ye know. This is an assurance. As John is writing this whole book for the assurance of salvation, for the assurance of forgiveness, for the assurance of position, uh, to, to give assurance when there's false accusation, false teaching coming in. He says, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him is no sin. And that's very key as well. Here we find the doctrine of sin. And we find the doctrine of Christ. We find the whole mission and purpose of Jesus the mission of the Messiah is found in, in several verses that I give to you here. First, Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Matthew 1, 21. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. How about Mark two seventeen? When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, they that are whole have no need of physician, but they that are sick. I am, came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. People say Jesus taught love and Jesus taught grace. Yeah, he did. He's the embodiment of loving grace. But he called people to repentance. We must still do the same. Jesus was a hard preacher. So was John the Baptist. Right? He wasn't soft and squishy. As a matter of fact, when he preached to those who knew the Bible the most, that's especially when he came across hard and, and, and uh, difficult, or even you'd say, well, Jesus wouldn't call names. He called them, they, they were called whitewashed tombs. He sure there was name calling, and rightly and justified so. He didn't do it in a sinful way, but he did so in a way of which he's going to be the one that judges those same individuals. He has the right and authority to do so, and I believe upon the word of God that we must as well Call sin, sin. Call right, right. And call a false teacher a false teacher. We can't mamby-pamby and try to make them feel good about what they're in or what they're doing. There is nothing good that comes out of sin. There is no good way. Matter of fact, it is a sin to try to twist sin to make sin not as bad as what sin actually is. That is in and of itself sinful. We're also then told that Jesus has come to save sinners, take away their sins, and He can do so because he has no sin in him. Second uh, Corinthians tells us this, verse number, uh, chapter number five. Second Corinthians five twenty one. 
For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Did Jesus know sin? No, he knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus, I firmly believe, not only did not sin, but could not sin. I believe that it was uh, absolutely of essence because he being fully God from eternity past to eternity future has no blemish or spot or darkness in him as John has already talked about. John 1 verse number 5. This then is a message which ye have heard of him declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Is Jesus God? That's, let me ask this again. Is Jesus God? There you go. All right. So did Jesus sin? Could Jesus sin? No. Because God cannot and will not sin. It is, goes contrary to his very nature, to his being. It cannot happen. Now, how about you and I who are just mortal flesh? Can you sin? Yes. Do you sin? Yes. Will you sin? Yes. I'm going to answer it for you in case you weren't sure. Right? Yes. Because that's who we are. We don't have a, deny, a divine nature within us or a sort of spark of divinity within us as many would teach today. Matter of fact, all that is in us is nothing but filthy rags, unrighteousness, dirty before the sight of God. That's why Jesus comes. He says that he was manifested not just because he felt like it, not just because, hey, I want to see what it's like to be human today. No, it says he was manifested to take away our sins. That he would come to be the perfect, spotless lamb of God to die the substitutionary death for your sins and mine. That's the whole point of the gospel. Not that Jesus has any sin that he needs to pay for, but rather you and I have all the sin that he's got to pay for because we got nothing. We got empty pockets. We've got nothing to offer. It is Jesus who must do such. I want to give you three things here with this. First, Jesus takes away the penalty of sin. Jesus takes away the penalty of sin. We see that sin is a transgression of the law. If you break the law, is there a penalty? Yes. Right? Think about this in the judicial system. If you are found guilty, what happens? Guilty, right? Going to jail, you're going, I mean, there's a multitude of other things that could be taking place, right? But you, you should be serving the, the, the price, the penalty for this action, right? As long as it all works out right. If you're guilty, you're guilty. There is now a penalty for such. You could even think outside of the judicial court. If a hockey player, and I don't know, anyone, does anyone watch hockey in here? All right, me and Doug, all right. Well, anyway, so you know this, right? But with hockey, if you get into a fight or cause a penalty, then you have to go into the penalty box, and you've got to serve you a little bit of time in there before you can come out and get back to, fun, uh, to fighting and punching people and stuff and, and, and chasing that little puck around. There's a penalty that must be served. Right? God is not going to look and go, you know, they had a whole pile of sins throughout their hundred years of existence, but they really tried their best, and so I'm just going to just ignore it. No, rather what happens is it must be paid for. There must be a penalty given. But instead of you paying that penalty and me paying that penalty, Christ pays it for us, and he pays it through his shed blood. This is what our justification by grace through faith in Christ truly means. It is that you and I take our penalty. We have our penalty, all of our guilt, all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our unworthiness, 
of our inability, and Jesus gets it. He becomes sin who knew no sin. The one who had never sinned and could not sin, then literally, as God looks upon him, it is as if he is sin itself. He is the curse. He, he becomes the cursed one upon that tree. That's the, the depth of your sin, but it's also the depth of the love of God to save you from your sin. That he who could not sin, he who would not be even uh, uh, able to sin or, or would even think about sinning, literally would become every sin that you've committed. He would become the filth. He would become the hatred and the wrath of God that was reserved for your sin and mine would then be poured out upon the Son. That's what Jesus comes to do, to take away that penalty. And in our justification, in our justified position, we are now fully and positionally declared righteous. There on the cross, what happens is this great exchange where all of our unrighteousness becomes His and all of His righteousness we get clothed in. It is as when Adam sins, everyone born after Adam is now imputed sin. But when Christ dies and raises to newness of life, and, and when we trust in Him, what happens? His righteousness then is imputed to us. It is an alien righteousness. It is a righteousness that does not come from this earth or come from our merits. It is all of His grace. Furthermore, <coughs> Jesus also takes away the power of sin. Jesus takes away the power of sin. This is our sanctification, that we continue to faithfully obey the Lord. Now, you would say, as long as we're in our flesh, we still have sin. Absolutely, and we will until we die. <clears throat> Excuse me. We will, uh, until we leave and put off this flesh, we will continue to battle and to fight this sin. But here's what happens. The more in, that we continue to faithfully obey Him, Sin begins to lose its power over our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we are freed by His grace. That's the whole idea. That we are freed from its power. Meaning this, if you look over in Romans chapter 6, you can see this whole long passage that talks about how uh, you are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer under the dominion or the control of sin. It is this, before Christ, you are in bondage to sin enslaved to it it is your master sin itself is your master it tells you what to do and you do it you seek sin you you love sin you go about finding new ways to sin if you can it, your whole life is consumed with sinning you would say well i wasn't that bad yeah you were the ones who th think i wasn't that bad because i got saved at a young age or because i was in church or because you know, i didn't do the gross sins well the Bible talks about you too over in Romans chapter 2. He says to the Jew, he says, you who would say, rah, rah, yeah, you tell them uh, there in chapter 1 about all those gross sins those Gentiles commit. And he says, you're just as guilty. Jesus didn't just die because some people would get drunk or high or be addicted to pornography or anything like that or commit murder. He died for you, the gossip, the prideful, the, the judgmental, the hypocritical, the Pharisee. That's who he died for too. So, so let's understand that. And let's see, though, that the longer that you and I know Christ, we should continuously and, and unfortunately, painfully and slowly sometimes be delivered from the power of sin in your life. Who, now, let me ask you this, all right? I need some more participation here. 
Who should sin more? Or who will, if all goes right, sin more? The person who got saved five minutes ago or the person who got saved 50 years ago? Which one sins more? This one got saved five minutes ago. Do you think they sin a lot? Do something, all right? Uh, go with me. Pretend, all right? Or do you think the person saved five minutes or 50 years, which one do you think will sin more? Both? I don't know. You're both, I don't, this is not really a trick question. The idea is this, guys. Look, it's this. The, this one doesn't know near as much about sanctification yet, does he? He just got saved. He's a newborn babe. And so what is he doing? He's going to keep doing what babies do and make messes until he starts to grow in sanctification. And the more you and I grow in sanctification, and if we get to that 50 years of being saved point, what should that mean? It does not mean that we don't ever sin because as long as we're in our flesh, we still will. But it certainly means I should not be sinning the same as I did then as when I first got saved. Why? Because that means that there's no growth and I'm still yet a babe and I still need milk and I can't handle the meat of the word. It means that I'm not really as Christian or as Christ-like as I thought I was. And I'm afraid that far too many go a long time knowing Jesus but still get stuck at that same little spot. We are not called to stay babes in Christ. We are called to be warriors. And I've never seen an army get called up or draft a baby. Anyone? No. You draft those who are adults, those who are matured, who can go in the fight. And in this spiritual fight, we're not going to fight if we're stuck as babes. The power of sin. Third, Jesus takes away the presence of sin. This is our glorification. Because as long as we're on this side of the grave, sin is everywhere. We are always and constantly, continuously in the presence of sin. As long as we have on this flesh, as long as we're around other people. Why? Because sinful people do what sinful people do. It's what we do in our flesh. It seeks sin. It is constantly fighting in this battle. But the great news is this. The moment of our glorification, the moment that we step out of this flesh, where we see the Lord face to face, there will be no more presence of sin or the potential to sin, and the curse will be removed from all things. That's what we're looking forward to. And we see that when he tells us that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin, it's this whole idea that from your justification, your sanctification, and your glorification, this is summed up in, in all of who Christ is and what all of Christ has done. And he's done it to deliver you from sin, past, present, and future, fully and finally and forever. And then we get to this. He says in verse number 6, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. What it means to abide in Christ. To truly abide in Christ means that we flee and fight the sin that is in us. The one who is truly abiding understands what sin is, understands who Christ is, and desires to serve the Lord. He understands that he is uh, the, the whole vine and branch mentality, that we are to be plugged into Christ at all times, that he is the source of our life, not just for salvation, but daily, in moment by moment, minute by minute. The more we abide in the Savior, the less we abide in our sin. Now here when he says in verse number six, whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Here's what that does not mean. It does not mean that you will Stop sinning or become or reach this sinless, perfected state. 
there are many denominations who teach that you can reach that place, that you can reach a place of sinless perfection on this earth. I would dare you to find somebody who says that and send them to my office for five minutes. I will make them sin. (laughs) I will prove them wrong, and I will do so happily, and I'll repent later for it. You and I cannot reach a place of sinless perfection. If we could, don't you think somebody in 6,000 years of human history would have done it? Ain't nobody done it. Matter of fact, we, we are still fighting this flesh, kicking and screaming all the way until we leave this world. So what does this mean? As David Guzik writes, it is very important to understand what the Bible means and what it does not mean when it, sa- what it, uh, when it says does not sin. According to the verbal tense John uses, does not sin means does not live a lifestyle of habitual sin. And this has already been addressed, side note here, all throughout the first two, two three chapters of, of John so far. This can, idea of habitual, continual sin. Not a mess up, not a blip, not a, uh, I stumbled, right? But we're talking about this continual sin. Guzik continues to write, he says, John has already told us in 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In 1 John 1, 8, the grammar indicates John is speaking about occasional acts of sin. The grammar of 1 John 3, 6 indicates that John is speaking of a settled, continued lifestyle of sin. John is not teaching here the possibility of sinless perfection. Now, there are certainly someone probably in here even today that just might be more sanctified than me. I'm trying here, right? We're all seeking that. Uh, But here's the thing. None of us have arrived yet to where we can say, well, I've got less sin than so-and-so's got, so therefore I'm a better Christian, I'm a better this or a better that. Because then we've just committed some more sin and added to the total here, all right? Nor can we go, you know something, because it's under the blood, therefore let me jump to this conclusion over here and say, well, since it's under the blood, that means that I've got no more sin and will not sin anymore because it's covered, so therefore I can live my life as I want. Well, what is that? It's the same thing we talked about last week, which is the Gnostics who said in John's day that because they have this sort of enlightenment about God, that they can either do all the sin that they want to and it not affect their bodies because their bodies are naturally sinful, or they had the idea that because their hearts were right, that they could do whatever they want and it won't taint their heart, or they just thought, eh, do what you want, why not, right? What does Jesus really care about, right? He saved us, it's fine. That is wrong. To abide in the Savior, present tense, which by the way, present, it's, it's continual, means that we are not abiding, present tense, in a habitual sinful lifestyle. We are free from sin, not free to sin. We are not to be controlled by Christ. Like, sorry, excuse me. We are to be controlled by Christ, not our sin. The moment that we're saved, we, we leave our masters, right? We, we, leave, we leave sin who tells us what to do and we, we obey. And now we are to be controlled by Christ, conformed to Him, conformed to His law, conformed to His Word, conformed to what He desires. It is now goes from being a life that is all about you and all about your sin and all about your own desires to now it is all about what God says and what God desires and God in us through us. 
Furthermore, we see that we are righteous, though, now, as he says um, in verse number seven, little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. Now, this does not mean that the Pharisees were righteous in the sense that they were saved, but rather this is talking about those who are saved. If we are righteous in him, it is because he is righteous and we seek to live the way that he did. He's already told us about that in verse number three of this chapter. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself as he is pure, that we are to live as he lived. And we see, as Sorensen writes, one who is justified, truly righteous, will be practicing righteousness. He has a new nature within created in righteousness and true holiness. Though he may not always do right since he has gotten saved, the characteristic of his life is now in that direction. One truly born again will tend to become righteous on a day-to-day level, even as our Lord is righteous. If there is no continual change, if there is no continual repentance, if there is no continual sanctification, then there is no real deal salvation. We must continuously, day by day, seeking the Lord, seeking to trust and obey Him. Will we fall? Will we sin? Will we stumble? Absolutely. Until you die. But do not lose hope. Rather, continue to follow what John has already told us. That if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. And that because we are now declared righteous, therefore, we will have an appetite and a hunger for it, and we should. Therefore, feed the Spirit. Feed the righteousness that is now in you, that has been given to us by Christ. Don't feed the flesh. Abide in Christ. And the more that you abide in Christ, the more that you look to Christ, the more that you walk with Christ, the more that you seek Christ, the less and less and less you will sin and seek sin. So where is our hearts today? Where are we standing before the Lord? And even more so today on a level, what is our desire of our heart? Is it what we want or is it what God wants? Let us choose what God says. Let us seek righteousness. Let us abide in Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. God, thank you for your word that we can study, that we can see the importance and the severity of what it means to sin. But Lord, as well, we can see the depth of your love and riches that you would save sinners like us. God, that you would give us a righteousness, Lord, that we might have right standing before you. And God, I pray that now, as we bring this portion to a close, that you would prepare our hearts for the worship service. God, that our hearts and minds would be focused on you and prepared to to glorify you and to worship you in song and fellowship. And and as we hear the preaching of your word, God, I pray that you would guide us, direct us, and strengthen us and help us be obedient now. In Christ's name, amen. All right, y'all, we'll take a pause for the cause. And the guys that want to come pray, y'all come on over.